0: Oh, so not so good. Are we feeling all right tonight? We good? Uh, Hey, as we get started tonight, um, I want to share a story with you uh, that pertains to Care Week, and then we will get off and running. Uh, Before I came to Jersey, I was the director of a ministry that was an on-campus ministry at Liberty called Dulas Ministries. And we basically partnered with local churches all around uh, the East Coast, really, that uh, maybe were financially a little bit uh, underprivileged in the sense that they weren't necessarily able to put on uh, community events or projects. uh, And we would go in and assist them with finances and volunteer labor to, uh, to help them reach their community for Christ. I want to tell you this story about a specific young man named Ashton. He was four and a half years old when he came to his first uh, sports and arts camp and uh, gave his life to Christ on a Tuesday night. The camp ran through Friday. Ashton comes from a broken home. Mom and dad were not together, uh, and he's got two brothers and sisters. Uh, and Ashton went home that night to his mom's house and told her uh, how incredible the love of God was. and she actually came to Christ on the testimony of this little four and a half year old boy Ashton. This chubby cheeked little boy goes home and is just so pumped about the Lord that he tells his mom she comes to Christ. The next night he comes back to camp and shares this news and we celebrated it and we made a huge deal of it. It was awesome. The next night he went home with his dad and talked to him about the enormous outrageous love of God and his dad came to Christ. Uh, Both parents were at sports camp that Thursday. Thursday uh, and on Friday, brother and sister came. It was this huge celebration. Mom and dad, three months later, uh, were uh, back in counseling together uh, and after about six and a half months, their marriage was restored. Ashton is in a put-together home once again. They are active in the church. The entire family got baptized together on the same Sunday. It was an incredible work of God uh, and he did it. God really did it through this, this, four-and-a-half-year-old chubby-cheeked boy who couldn't even explain exactly what had happened to him, but just knew that God had done something outrageously incredible. Uh, the reason I share that with you is because this summer, uh, we are going to be putting on an event called Care Week, and basically what we'll be doing is moving on to campus for a week where some of us will be adopting families and communities and, and basically doing construction projects for those communities who maybe they need a roof, or maybe they need a fence, or maybe they need a deck, and we're going to get to share about the love of Christ through those labors or say you may be on a team that does sports and arts camps in downtown Pataskala where 75 or 100 kids are going to come and if say you love soccer or you love basketball or you're a baseball player or you're a cheerleader or whatever the case may be, you're going to get to partner with coaches from Jersey and love on a group of chubby faced kids for a week and not only are you going to get to show them and teach them a skill but you'll get to talk to them about the love of Jesus Christ in their lives and the story I shared with you just a few moments ago is a story about how God can use even the most unlikely individual in Ashton who doesn't exactly uh, have all of his vocabulary words down yet and maybe he slurs his R's but he was able to talk about the love of God and his family is together tonight uh, and it is an incredible work of God so I Extreme! I cannot even begin to uh, pressure you enough and push you enough. This is an activity that you need to be a part of. You getting to see life change. You getting to be used in a miraculous way. You you being a vessel where God will uh, advance the gospel through you. That's a privilege that we can't even begin to imagine the significance of. Uh, And it only costs hundred dollars. So in the evenings we're going to be partnered with other churches around the area in worship. We're going to be doing bonfires. We're going to be Uh, experience in community with other youth groups and in the days we're going to work our tails off uh, that other people would be able to see the love of God in and through us. So I strongly encourage you to get signed up. If you're already signed up uh, we have Krispy Kreme donuts for you uh, and we announced that several times already. Uh, If you take a form tonight and you get it signed and bring it back uh, you will assure your spot on the team and we're going to have a great time. So that's my shameless plug for Care Week. Uh, grab your Bibles, and I want you to start out in First Peter. Going to be jumping over to First John, which is just a couple pages to the right of it. Uh, and this is where we will be spending our evenings. How many of you have been with us for most of the LoveWell series? This is part four. How many of you have been with us for most of the LoveWell series? All right, awesome. So, so what we're what we're really talking about is is in these last couple weeks anyways, what is love and who is love and how do we receive love and experience love to the fullest form? In week one, we talked about how God is love. What is love? God is love. We, we watched the video. Do you remember the video that we watched where they stopped random strangers and asked them, what, what do you think love is? And the stupid answers that came out of that session, just ridiculous. And the one that I think is probably the most outrageous was uh, the boyfriend-girlfriend that got stopped. And uh, the guy's like, what, what do you think love is? And, and the guy, the boyfriend, was like, uh, he, he, like 17. He's like, um, I think it's when you, uh, when you think alike. And you kind of like each other, and they walked away holding hands. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that is the that is the product of broken education systems. That the girl would walk away with him, hand in hand. If you are walking next to uh, a young man that loves Jesus and is stopped on the corner, and he says, "I think that uh, love is when you you know you kind of you know you lo- you think the same and you kind of like each other." Just punch that dude in the gut and walk on, all right? He's a bum, he's a bum. Just move on, and dudes, do not be so stupid uh, as to talk like that. What, what is love? But it, it really is the question that so many people are trying to answer many people are trying to look for love in so many different places where it cannot be found to its fullest form some people associate love with a feeling some people associate love with an attraction some people associate love with uh, an experience or a person and some people associate love with a decision and, and really how you answer that question, what is love, will shape you and mold you and really determine for you whether you are in the right mind and the right heart to receive it in its fullest form. So the first week what we basically wanted to say is that God is love. That if you're looking for love, you got to go to God. Your possessions, your friends, your popularity, your talents, your abilities, your money, your experiences. It will never, ever complete you. I'm going to say that again. It is never going to complete you. Never. Regardless of what you think you want in order to be satisfied within the gut of you, it will never work unless you find complete satisfaction in God through Christ. It is impossible for you to ever attain so much money, so much status, so much power, so much experience, so much popularity or so many relationships that you could actually go to bed at night and say I'm completely satisfied I need no more. Never find the answers to the problems within your heart in the things that this world has to offer. It's impossible for you. It's not coming for you. It's not. And we did this a year ago, and we'll do it again just for proof. There is someone in the room right now that has what you think will complete you. There are people in here who have more money than you do. There are people in here who are able to buy things that you can't buy right now. There are people in here who have PS4s and Xbox Ones, a couple of them for every room. And you're like on the edge of your seat like, man, if I could just get that video game and I could just destroy some people in Call of Duty, I'd be so happy. No, you want it. Proof. Because there are people in here who have that, and they are still as miserable with their lives as you are. If I could just look like that, if I could, if I could have that kind of, uh, if I could have that kind of appearance, if I could, if I could have that kind of popularity, if I could have that many friends, if I could, if I could do this, that, or the other, then I would be completely satisfied. No, you wouldn't. There is never going to be a point in time where you will be satisfied in the guts of you and the soul of you. With what the world has to offer it's not coming for you and on top of that what you are going to be completed by in the love of god you are before you come to christ a rebel of him you are a sinner going the opposite direction doing everything in your power to fill your soul with everything but him Meanwhile, he pursues you with love and kindness. He allows you to see each day and every morning. He allows you to laugh. He allows you to enjoy a relationship. He allows you to experience the world that he's laid out before you. And all the while that he does so, We would continue to rebel against him and this is really the story of the universe mainly that there is a god with a love so great and so massive and so expansive and in his own power when there was nothing he spoke everything into existence and when he spoke it into existence it was that is kind of power that money cannot buy regardless of how talented you are you will never say something and it just come to be It's not going to come for you. But God, before the foundations of the world were laid, God looked at it and he saw this open canvas and he said, I'm going to create something for my glory and he speaks it into existence, which is why if you read Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke them into existence. He says, let there be light and there is light. He says, let there be form and there is form. God speaks all things into existence existence and then in a beautiful outpouring of his power he uniquely creates you and me humans and he does it by getting down on his hands and knees digging in the clay, forming the first man, breathing the breath of God into that man. And Adam wakes up experiencing a brand new world that has never been experienced by human eyes before. And God basically made an unwritten contract with Adam that for the most part said, if you will obey me and enjoy me, I will be glorified and your satisfaction will only increase. It will be beautiful. Go into the world that I've created, love me, enjoy me i'm going to walk with you in the coolness of the day it'll be beautiful take the good things that i've created enjoy them and then roll them off in the upwards of praise for me absolutely live life to the fullest and do it all for the glory of my name and adam goes out and he gets to work he was told to work it and keep it so he works it and keeps it He starts naming all the animals in the world giving them names and and helping them have their identity and being able to distinguish between them and then god stops the narrative and he says hey uh, something's missing every other specimen has a helpmate but adam is without a helper so he puts adam to sleep and takes the rib of Adam and creates a woman and Adam wakes up and he goes mind blown like literally Pfft. i've seen all the world and it's it's amazing but nothing tops that right there and he begins to pursue Eve and and God gives The two to each other and they are able to display god's love in their relationship in perfection in beautiful love and kindness towards each other for the glory of god and then the story goes south and we've talked about it many times there's a snake that enters the garden the devil is uh possessing that animal and the serpent speaks cunningly to eve and says did god really say that you're not supposed to eat any of the trees in this garden and eve says no god says don't eat of this tree and the enemy says oh I know why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree. He thinks that you're going to make a better God than he does. He's nervous that if you eat of that tree you'll know good and evil like he knows good and evil and you'll make a better God than he does and he'll lose his throne. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree. Beyond that, doesn't it look good? Doesn't the fruit look good? Doesn't it look delicious to the eyes? So Eve takes the apple or the fruit off and bites down on it and then gives it to her moron husband and it has always puzzled me, where is Adam when this is happening? Like, like there is, a, there is a serpent in the garden, and Adam, all the while, is like, squirrels. Look at that. That's beautiful. All the while, Eve is being tricked and fooled into a decision that would curse the world forever. And Adam is doing nothing to protect his bride from the intruder and the tempter in the garden. Nothing. Eve hands the fruit over to Adam and Adam's like, eats it. And at that point in time, what you need to understand is that the world as it was intended to be shattered, nothing would remain the same. Now last night I was teaching a New Testament class to adults. Uh, I have a lot of fun with adults, but I got more fun with you guys. I, I, like, I like being with you guys more. I was with adults, and we were in the book of Romans, which is a really theological book. If you ever read it, you're probably going to get stumped. I get stumped every time I read it, but it's a marvelous book. Uh, we're, we're in the book of Romans, and if you read the first chapter of the book of Romans, it really whoa, it really does not deal too kindly with humanity. It doesn't talk overly friendly about who we are and what we uh, are doing with our lives. It basically calls us haters of God, wicked in all our ways, sinful to the core, that we would do all things against God, that we know God is real, but all the while we rebel against him. Romans is brutal about who we are, but Romans also says that because the first man sinned, that all men followed his path into sin, that all men took the life that they were given and rebelled against God in an effort to live for their own glory and for their own names sake and this is where you and I fall and the people that I was with last night we spent an hour and a half just talking about this but could I ask you a question do you actually believe in your spirit that you have rebelled against God do you actually believe that at one point in time, if you're in Christ now, you might be able to say, I love God, I've been serving God for so many years, I I love God, I've I've been in this for so long, I I love God, and and I, I praise God that you do. But before you came to Christ, has there ever been a point in time where you hated Him? Has there ever been a point in time where you rebelled against Him? Has there ever been a point in time where you sinned against Him? Has there been a point in time where you felt like your way was better than His? That you knew more than he knew? That other things would bring you more satisfaction than he does? Have you ever hated him? Some of you might be like, no, I've never hated him. I, I, I would beg to differ. The bible says that all men have fallen short of the glory of god that every single individual in this room before coming to christ not only hated god but we sought to do with our bodies what we wanted to do when we knew that god had said don't do that that every one of us are born into the world knowing how to sin and loving sin more than god and you might not agree quite yet but But it's pretty obvious. Um, How many of you ever lied? How many of you ever cheated? How many of you ever stolen? How many of you ever hated? Okay, now let me ask you this question. Who taught you how to do that? Who taught you how to do that? Parents in the back. How many of your kids have ever lied to you? Raise your hands. Look back at the parents. Some of of them are your parents. And you're like, oh, mom, put your hand down. And your mom's in the back are like, yeah, they're liars. Now let me ask you this question in the back. How many of you taught your kids how to do that? How many of you were like, all right, Jimmy, this is what we're going to do. I want you to say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. I want you to do the dishes once a day and take out the trash. Now that we've got that established, here's how to tell a really good lie. How many had parents do that for you? Nobody. Nobody learns how to sin. They do it naturally. When you are born a fundamental, foundational platform that you must understand if you are to really marvel at the grace of Jesus Christ in the story of the gospel, you must grasp this. Every single one of us have rebelled in such a way that is reflective of a broken spirit within us every single one of us has sought to belittle the glory of god in making much of the glory of ourselves and i know that some of us might be like that's not my story i I was saved early i've been a good kid I've, i've followed the lord even in the earliness of your salvation your heart was found in the gospel wicked before you came to christ wicked and god has dealt so kindly with us 1 Peter 2, verses 22, it says this, He committed no sin, this is Christ, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly now this is an interesting verse but i love it and i specifically love how it talks about christ saying that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly so so let's deal pretty honestly right now if every single one of us have spirits that at one time have hated god the god who is just in his ways who is perfect holy in his ways then what we have to understand is that this God will have righteousness served he will have justice served regardless of whether that is pleasant for us or not we are the rebels and we are not going to accuse him of doing the injustice he alone is perfect God being just righteous and holy looks at our rebellion we are deserving recipients of his wrath in that moment and God sends his son in the flesh to live the life that we could not live he he commits no sin it's not that it's not that Christ was a good man it's that he was a perfect man Living the life that we could not live, being the fulfillment of God's standard, His righteous law. Yet on a hill called Calvary, God put Him on a cross and poured His wrath for us out onto Him. And Christ, as He suffers under the weight of the wrath that we deserved, He continues to entrust His spirit to the God who judges justly. Can you wrap your mind around that? that every step that Christ took from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane into Pilate's court when he would be beaten and bruised beyond measure, most men never even made it out of the courtyard after a Roman whipping because the whip, the cat of nine tails, was designed to rip every part of flesh off the back of your body. And Christ continues to be faithful to what God had asked him to do, mainly to suffer and die for the sins of the world can you wrap your mind around that and now let me say this to you it should have been me and it should have been you it should have we are the ones who rebelled christ he did nothing he was faithful to his father he did everything he was asked to do he walked in obedience We were the ones that rebelled. We were the ones that operated out of a soul that hated the God who made us and sustained us. It should have been me and it should have been you. Yet Christ faithfully looks into the depths of our soul through his story and says, I'll take this one. I'll bear the weight. I'll own this. Which is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so powerful when it says that he, being God the Father, makes him God the Son who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That Christ, in one singular act of love, walks faithfully to the will of his Father all the way to the cross. And on the cross, he stretches out his hands. And God the Father, who is just and righteous, who will deservingly and rightfully pour out wrath, pours out that wrath on his Son so that you would not have to experience the full weight of the condemnation that you deserve and all the while every ounce of pain that he felt both emotionally physically spiritually mentally every ounce of pain that Christ experienced this verse says that he entrusted himself he entrusted himself to the will of the father and said I will do what you have asked me to do and the God who serves justice rightly judges Christ condemns his own son so that we would be made free. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because look here, if you think the cross is merely an effort by God on high to make you who were bad good, then you are mistaken and you are thinking of yourselves more highly than you should. The cross of Christ was God's singular move towards mankind. Mankind who was dead in their sins, rebellious in their ways, not just sort of bad, completely rebellious in his ways. And God sends his son and pursues that man and that woman. I haven't sinned as much as other people. You operate out of the same wicked spirit that all men operate out of. So if your moms and dads are really big into like Fox News and you flip on Fox News and you start to hear of the horrors that go around our globe, and you start to think about it, and you start to think, man, those people are so bad. They're so wicked. They're so evil. I'm sure glad that I've never done anything like that. You look right at me. The wickedness that is within them, that is manifesting itself through the horrid deeds that they do, is the same wickedness that was found in your spirit before Christ washed you clean. And regardless of how it manifested itself, regardless of whether you've pulled a trigger on a man or you've just told a white lie by shoving all the garbage in your room underneath your bed and telling your mom that you cleaned it, regardless of how bad you think it gets in the eyes of the world, within you it is the same heart of wickedness manifesting itself based on the culture that we live in and the world that we observe you are not better than anybody and neither am i we are all rightful deserving recipients of god's wrath but god who is rich in mercy sends his son to take our place and under the wrath of god christ is crushed that we would be made well in fact the verse continues on to say this it says this of christ he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed this is miraculous it's a glorious exchange one that you do not deserve when you find Christ when you repent when you trust when you believe that Christ is the son of God who has bore your sins who has been slaughtered under the weight of the wrath that you deserved and then raised up three days later in victory when you believe that god takes the wickedness that is within you and transfers it to christ and bears the weight on christ on calvary in a single moment two thousand years ago and in your place he dies and then he gives you his righteousness that you would be able to stand before god of heaven Owning the righteousness of Christ. So that God would look at you and say. Not guilty. You are free. Can you imagine that? Like do you you really understand. That not just your little grievances. And the little sins that you have committed. But your heart of wickedness. Was represented on the cross of Christ. And Christ was handed over to butchery. And in his bleeding and in his death, he willingly took upon himself what we deserve to take God's wrath and made a way for us to receive his righteousness. So that it's not just get your sins forgiven, not just you're a sinner and the cross of Christ brings you back to a place of neutrality. It's literally that the cross of Christ takes the wickedness from you and then imputes to you a righteousness not your own. So that when God the Father looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son and says you are not guilty. You will go free. That in this event we have been made well and we have been healed of the broken wickedness that is within us do you believe that and what tremendous love of god for us that we could offer him nothing but rebellion and he would do this all the same do you get that part like there is nothing that you can do for him that he does not already have own or congenerate nothing There is nothing that i can offer him that he doesn't already have yet all the while god still sends the son and the son was still bruised on my behalf crushed on my behalf and he has still imputed to me new life not my own that i did not deserve that it was in his wounds we have been made healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls isn't that, a, isn't that a great line i love that that you have returned to the overseer of your soul That at one point in time, you were a rebellion. Uh, you You were a rebellious individual that did everything in your power to sin as much as you could against the God of heaven. But in the cross of Christ, he has wooed you with his love, lavished it upon you. He has loved us so very well. And in his love, he has brought us back into the fold to know him, to love him, and to live in him. Have you ever read that story in Luke 15 where it talks about how a hundred sheep and one of them goes still has 99 and the shepherd leaves the flock to get the one and brings the one home have you ever heard that story before first of all uh if you look at it numerically the guy's kind of dumb because it's like you had a 99 i'm pretty sure that that one is not greater than 99 math makes me sick but even i can figure that one out all the while the shepherd to get the one showing and demonstrating the ridiculous amount of love that he has for the strayed sheep he brings the sheep home that the sheep would be shepherded by him once again and that's exactly what Christ has done for us that he has gone after the rebellion who lives in darkness has picked the rebel up on his shoulders and brought him back into the fold the overseer of our souls has retrieved us and now guards us and shepherds us that we would walk towards new life in him and the second thing that you need to gather from this verse is that he just compared you to a sheep that's kind of offensive like not even anything cool my favorite kind of animal is a great white shark my second favorite kind of animal is a killer whale i would love to swim with them both at the same time because i want to see what would happen (laughs) And if something bad go- if something goes real bad I'm going to go see Jesus. I mean like of all the cool animals in the world to be compared to a sheep. You know what's significant about that? Sheep are dumb. They're dumb. They are they are terribly ridiculously foolishly handicapped dumb animals and God compares you to that but he also says I'm the shepherd that will make you well I'm the one that will walk this with you I'm the one that will restore you to health I'm the one that will walk you all the way home do you know why that is because God receives the glory for this not you because God will get the praise not you When you are brought home, it's not because you're awesome. It's not because you're cool. It's not because you're funny. It's not because you're better than other people. When you're brought home, it's because the strong arms of God have reached into the deadness that was you and resurrected it. To him be the glory for what he has done within us. We have been retrieved to the overseer of our souls. And then going back over to 1 John, because this story is absolutely true. Because Christ absolutely has done this, regardless of whether you believe it or not, that God of heaven has made himself known specifically and specially through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because it is true, and because many of you have received that within you, this is what the Bible would have to say of those of us who are Christians, beloved, If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this is a shift. This is a paradigm shift. Because so far, for three and a half weeks, we have discussed God's overwhelming, lavishing, over-the-top, ridiculous amount of love going towards you. But he flips the switch right here. It's a paradigm shift, really, when he says, because you have been so well loved, you also ought to love one another. That there should be a unique relationship between Christians that is one of love. The overflow of what God has done within you. In fact, it goes even further. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. That God demonstrates the power of His salvation by enabling us to love each other through the mess and through the nasty and through our hypocrisy and through our frustrating idiosyncrasies and through our struggles and through our trials and through our pains that God has demonstrated his love for us and empowered us to love one another. So here's a definition for you. Love says, I see the ugly in you. And I'm staying. Love says, I see the ugly in you, and I'm staying. And that's exactly what God did for you. You didn't look cute and funny and awesome to God when He sent His Son and crushed His Son under the weight of your sin. You looked rebellious, you looked like a darkened heathen, you looked like a sinner. And even when you could offer him nothing but rebellion, God said, I love you. But God, I can do nothing to repay. I love you. But God, even after you save me, I'm still going to struggle. I'm still going to fight. I'm still going to fall. And I'm still going to have a hard time with this. I love you. But what if I mess it up? and, And what if I don't quite measure up? What if I can't get it right away? I love you. That's exactly what God has said to us. And so, through this love, we are to love one another. We're a bigger youth group. We, we have a substantial sized youth group here. We're not the biggest in the country. We're not the smallest in the country. There are many churches around our state right now that are meeting with smaller youth groups than we are. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it doesn't make us any better than anyone else. I- really small youth group. I've told you this before. There were eight of us. There were two Hartleys, two Butterballs, two Tibbs, and two Holcombs in our youth group. That was all of us. And my Grammy was our youth leader. We were getting down in the Bible in a tiny little classroom. Did not look like this. Tiny little youth group. Because we are larger, sometimes our sins are more apparent and more visible to the people around us one thing that we are accused of quite a bit and some of it is our fault all of us it's our fault at jersey it is our fault all of us some of us are accused our family has been accused of unloving judgmental unreceiving closed door people that play games with the Bible, but don't actually believe it. Now are those accusations 100% true? I don't believe so. But are there times that we think more about ourselves than we do others? Are there times where we act unloving towards our brothers and sisters and those who are coming into our family? We do. And look here, shame on us. Shame on us. Shame that we would be so tied into what we want and how we want it that we wouldn't love on the people around us. Shame on us that we would live our lives outside of these four walls and we would count the people who can do stuff for us as more important than the people who need us. Shame on us. That we don't live lives that demonstrate the power of the gospel in us through a love that says, I don't care how messy it gets. I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to love you as Christ loves you so that you can see the unfathomable love that God has for you through me. I'm going to love you. That this is how the Christian is to be marked. That this is the uniting factor among the family of God. That we would demonstrate what God has given to us on other people. Here are a couple of realities for you as we wind down. You cannot give what you have not, have not received. You cannot give what you have not received. If you're in here and you're like. Hey, lovey-dovey. i we'll just give everybody a hug. I'm just going to go around and, and I'm just going to be loving. That's awesome. If you do not know Jesus Christ in this place, if you do not know Him in your soul, then you are not capable of giving love as God has loved you. You are not capable. And you will be frustrated if you try to abide in what the Bible teaches about love if you try to do it apart from Jesus Christ empowering you to do so. You cannot give what you have not received. You're not going to be able to love the individuals around you if you have not first been loved by God and returned that love in your remission, your repentance of sins and your trust in Him. You can't. This is point number one, number two. Loving people is not an option for those who know Jesus. It's not an option. It doesn't matter if it makes you look uncool. It doesn't matter if you'll lose friends. It doesn't matter If you loving individuals that look unlovely it doesn't matter if that would mark your reputation as some kind of uh, some kind of you know if you're like the popular guy and there's someone else who is struggling in your school who doesn't have individuals who doesn't have people who are supporting him and you move over there to care for them and the people that you're leaving behind your friends look down on you for that it doesn't matter loving people is not an option for the people that have experienced the love of God. It's not an option. Get over yourselves. It's not about you to begin with. It's about the glory of God being seen as the family of God expands. You have received so much in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now you are called to demonstrate it to talk about it and to show it to the people around you. Your call. That other people would see the glory and the beauty of what he has done in you and that they, too, may experience such a thing in Jesus Christ. You have been loved so well. And now it is your turn to abide in him and to love well those who are around you and we will spend the next eight weeks talking about how we do that as the band comes and plays we're just going to uh wrap down let me ask you this uh if you just close your eyes for a sec how many of you would attribute um when you, when you were coming to Christ or uh, when you were first being pursued with the gospel and you were a sinner and you hadn't trusted in him, how many of you would say that it was the love of individuals around you that really kind of softened you uh, to the gospel maybe it's someone saying hey you ought to come to church with me uh, this is our family this is what we believe or maybe it's someone saying hey God loves you so much and he gave his son for you maybe it's someone who's just saying I'm going to stand here and I'm going to love you no matter what how many of you would say that an individual in your life or a couple individuals uh, really warmed you up to uh, the God of heaven and his story in Jesus Christ put your hands up put them up higher than that okay open up your eyes real quick and look around Lots of people. Lots of people. Now put your hands down and close your eyes. How many of you have ever experienced a point in time when you feel like you are unlovable and the people around you seem to evidence that in the way that they treat you? How many of you? Okay, hands up. Hands up. All right, open up your eyes. Look around. All right, so no one's... No one's out of here. Put your hands down. Close your eyes. Let me speak to you. We talked last week about how Jesus is your Hosea. And you are Gomer. In your sins, a slave to rebellion the God of heaven has reached down and in power and in glory and in might has saved you through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He has said, I will love you. I will love you. You can do nothing for him. You can't impress him. Nothing you could do to earn it. But God still says, I will love you I will love them until the very end, Jesus says. You have been loved by God so well, and now we must love one another. Every day, in every relationship, in every moment, we must demonstrate The love that God has poured into us through the love that we give to other people. And the hands that went up around this room is evidence that A, God can do amazing things when people demonstrate the love that God has given them. Like look here, when you love people, God can do amazing things through you. People who you think would never come to Christ may have their souls softened as you vigorously love them and care for them and point them towards Jesus. God could use you in a really beautiful way. And number two, there are so many people who so desperately need it to experience the love that you have in God and to know Him also. love people, point them towards God, see lives transformed. It's not an option, it's a call. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for this evening. We thank you that you have been gracious to us, that you have saved us, that you've reached into the darkness of our hearts, and you have allowed your light to shine in such a beautifully stirring and drawing way. That now we know you and we love you. Help us to love you more. And help it to be manifested as we love people in our lives. Give us great strength, great courage, and great resolve to see this thing done in a way that would bring glory to you. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. We said this last week, we're going to worship. I'm excited about the songs we're singing tonight. I love worshiping with Jersey students. I've said this, if there is anywhere in the world that I want to be where a corporate body of believers chases the Lord together, it's right here in this room with you people. I mean, you are some kind of crazy party people when it comes to chasing Jesus in corporate worship. It's awesome. Uh, So as we do that, if you're a visitor with us and you're like, these people are so weird, um, It's cool. We'll give you a hug afterwards, and if you keep coming, you might experience the same thing. This altar is open. If you've been touched by God, overwhelmed by God, if you've got a burden for a friend, and you want to pray, God, how might I love them? How might I talk to them about the Lord? How might I really share the love that you have given me to them? And you want to pray about that? Certainly find your place here. Uh, If you've been overwhelmed by God's love, and you want to lift your hands, and you want to praise God in what he has done in you, be at peace and do that. Um, But also, don't make a mockery of this time. Uh, Don't be on your phones. Don't be distracting the people around you. Don't be talking and joking around. It's not a time for that. If you're up front, don't make a show of it. Just come and pray. If brothers and sisters are up here and you feel led to come and pray for them, certainly do that. But don't think that it's because you are great. Think that it's because God is great and He has allowed us to be a family together. Uh, And let's experience some awesome Chasing the Lord. Can we do that? Is that cool? All right. Why don't you stand to your feet, and we will. Uh, we'll do just that.